0: If you get to know me, or as you get to know me, one of the things you'll discover is that I'm a nostalgic kind of guy. I was nostalgic when nostalgia wasn't cool. I like old stuff, and I guess maybe that's appropriate because I'm becoming old stuff as the years go by. I like old TV shows. I like old movies. I like old music. I'm trying to get rap music but I'm not getting it. Hard as though I try. We're sort of technophobic in our household too. We have a computer that runs Windows 98. It takes a half an hour to boot up. We had a cell phone that was coal fired and we decided maybe we should retire that one so we got a more modern one. We do not have a satellite dish in our home. We live in a two-channel universe. I don't know. I'm nostalgic. Sometimes when I look at the future, I'm not too enthused. I kind of like the way things were 30, 40 years ago. It seemed pretty cool back when uh, Gilligan's Island was on TV and, I don't know, men were men and women were women and we knew the difference. Okay, I like that stuff. Okay. <laughs> So I look at the future, and I, I'm not too enthused. I mean, now we got iPods, we got webcams, we got stuff we don't even know what it is, but we got it. We got telephones that you can take, uh, you know, pictures on and watch TV on, and and they even say you can actually talk on the telephone on these cell phones. Isn't that amazing? We also have things now like terrorism, avian flu, and a soaring gas prices. I saw a cartoon yesterday. It was. Animals that you should be afraid of. One of them was a lion that was roaring. Uh, The next one was a snake, like a cobra or something that was hissing. And the third one was a little duck that goes, (laughs) achoo. Think that through. We got avian flu. So if I'm not too careful, I can become an over-nostalgic kind of guy. I can become a backwards-oriented person that looks at the past with shiny rose-colored glasses and says, everything was more wonderful 20, 30, 40 years ago than it is today. And all the good stuff happened already. And as I look to the future, all I see is gloom and doom and inflation and and getting flu from a duck and and terrorism and, and terrible things. I don't know, maybe you're a little like me. Sometimes we hold the past in our mind like some beautiful, nostalgic, golden era. If we could only get back to that, then things would be wonderful once again. If we could only make this a Christian country once again, where God is honored everywhere, then things would be wonderful, just like they were in the past. Nothing wrong with nostalgia, but what it happens is what happens is if you're oriented towards the past too much, you, what happens is you tend to miss the present, the present opportunities, the things that are happening in your life right now, and you tend to fear the future, so you do not think Forward-oriented. And uh, we're an 80-year-old church, so any church that's 80 years old has a tendency to be more past-oriented than future-oriented just because we've been around a long time. Just like a person who is 80 years old will think more in terms of the past or what used to be more than what is happening now or even what is going to happen in the future. Now, our God is a God of the past, and we celebrate what He has done each Sunday through Jesus Christ, and that's good. And He has blessed us with a truckload of blessings in the past, but He is also a God of the present, and He is a God of the future. And God wants us to live in the present and face the future with confidence. And He wants us to see what He's doing now and what He's going to do in the future. And that's what this sermon is about. Let's pray and we'll start. Father, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for the courage of men like Stephen, who was not afraid to take a stand, was not afraid to identify himself with you, was not afraid to look at what you were doing in that present time when he lived and what you were doing in the future. And uh, he suffered for it, but he honored you with his life. And we want to learn from this Passage in Acts, Acts 6, 7, and 8, an extensive passage. Help us to understand what's going on here and uh, speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening, our ears are open, our minds are focused, our hearts are ready to obey uh, what the Spirit is saying to the church here in the gloss. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're at the end of Act, Acts chapter 6. If you're just joining us, we're doing a series in Acts. And uh, the church has been birthed in Jerusalem, it's growing, the spirit has been given, people are bold, they are witnessing, they're they're preaching the message of the resurrection, and Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, he says, you will be my witnesses, you will be a witnessing community in Jerusalem, in Samaria, Judea, and then throughout the whole world. So we're still in the Jerusalem phase, it's still restricted to the city, but some amazing things are happening. And... uh, God was doing a new thing now, building something called the church, which was new. And nobody had really seen this before. But it was a community of witnesses of the resurrection. And they were starting to meet together in their homes. They were having uh, communion meals together. They were sharing their lives with one another. They were trying to make sure there were no poor people among them. And the big thing, the, the message they had, though, was that Jesus is Messiah... And he is raised from the dead, and he is alive, and he is our Lord. And it was primarily a Jewish thing up until this point. Most of the Christians were Jewish people from that background, okay? A background of the Old Testament and the covenants, and their Bible was the Pentateuch and the Old Testament, and the place they worshipped was the temple, all right? So it's primarily a Jewish thing so far. And we looked at, what we looked at last week is the, the movement was mushrooming so big, it was becoming thousands and thousands of people, and it was being led by 12 apostles, and the thing was getting so huge that they couldn't administer it anymore. Uh, they couldn't look after all of these widows. We looked at how as a movement grows and God blesses it, more and more people have to be brought in to use their gifts, and so that people in leadership can focus on the ministry of prayer and the word. One of the men that they chose to be an administrator was a man named Stephen. And you remember I don't know if you remember last week, we said there was two kinds of Jews in the early church. There was the Jewish Jews, the people who spoke Hebrew, and uh, they grew up in Palestine and so forth. And then there was what we would call Greek Jews. They were Greek-speaking, they were uh, Jewish people, but they came from a different cultural background, okay? And one of the neat things that was happening was God was mixing these two cultures together into the new church. And so Stephen was one of these new guys coming in, a Greek speaker and a Hellenist. And the scripture describes him in a beautiful way. In chapter 6, verse 5, it says a couple of things in verse 5 and first, verse 8. In verse 5, it says he was a man full of faith and of God's Holy Spirit. Wouldn't you want that to be a description of your life? I'd love that to be said of me. And then verse 8, it says, it was he, Stephen was a man full of God's grace and full of God's power. Okay, He was a powerful man. Not that he had big abs or anything like that, but he was a powerful man. He knew what he believed. He believed in Messiah who was filled with God's spirit, and he was not afraid of men. He told it like it was. I mean, this guy did not fear people. And so I would have liked to have known Stephen. I would like to have known the power in his life. I would have liked to have seen him operate. I would like to have known him. I think it was contagious, his courage. He was what we would call a deacon. Okay, he was looking after the widows, doing an administrative kind of things. But he could also preach up a storm. Okay. We might call him a lay preacher. He was a, a Greek Jew, a Hellenistic Jew. He had a Greek name and background. And, of course, he was one of these outsiders that had come into the church from the outside. And these Hellenistic Jews even had their own synagogues where they could have their Hebrew ceremonies, Jewish ceremonies, in, in their Greek language. So it talks about the fact that as he started to preach and to speak, that certain Jewish people started to oppose him. And the opposition, in verse 9, says it came from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen. Okay? And I go, yo, what's that? Well, what, what that was, was these were outsiders who came into Jerusalem. They were sons of slaves. Okay? So they were free people now. That's why they call themselves the freedmen. They were Greek background, but Jewish people. All right? And what they wanted to do was they came to Jerusalem to be closer to the, to the temple, to the heart of the Hebrew faith, And they wanted to be accepted by the Jewish Jews, okay? And so here we have Stephen, who is one of their own. He's starting to stand up and say things like, Jesus is Messiah, okay? And and he's somebody who's filled with the Spirit. And he's saying, you need to repent of your sins and follow Jesus, Messiah. And the people in the synagogue are saying, wait a minute, we don't like that. That's rebellious kind of talk. It doesn't help us to fit into the rest of the culture. So it says that the synagogue, the the leaders of that synagogue began to oppose Stephen and they'd set up debates and they'd try to argue with the guy. But look what it says about him it says, they could not, verse 10, they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. Jesus said, Don't be afraid when you're in front of people, I will give you words to speak. And so that's what is going on. So they, they try to argue him down. They try to, to demonstrate, you know, Jesus is not Messiah. We need to stay with the old customs and so forth. And it's not working. So they realize we need a new strategy to shut this guy up because he's threatening our position in the community. The, you know, the temple people and the high priest, they're going to reject us because of this Stephen guy. So we need to, to really get rid of this person. And so they came up with a new strategy. They'll say, if we can't argue him down, we have to make him look like a heretic. We have to make it look like he's attacking the foundations of our Jewish faith. Okay, And so this is actually what they did against Jesus as well All right, when he was on trial. And it worked when they used it on Jesus, and they figured it probably will work here too. So Stephen is framed, verses 11 to 15. We need to understand that at that time, the Jewish faith was built on sort of three pillars, okay? Three things that the Jew, if you were a good practicing Jewish person, there were three things in your life that you took comfort in. Three things that were your security. Three things that told you that you were God's special person. It was like proof that, you know, God is for us and, and we're the chosen ones. One was the land of Palestine because God had promised that to them. Second thing was the law of Moses. We have the Bible. And the third thing was the temple. We have the place of worship. And so they saw this as three stamps of approval, okay, that God had chosen them. And so the men who are against Stephen said, we're going to get him. If we're going to get this guy, we have to show that he's attacking these three pillars. And that's what they do. Look at verses 11 to 14. They secretly persuaded some men to say, "We've heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses, OK, the lawgiver, all right? and against God." And verse 12. They stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers. they seized Stephen, and they brought false witnesses who said, "This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place. That's the temple. That's another pillar of the Hebrew religion, and against the law, another temple, or another uh, pillar. And then, worst of all, verse 14, we've heard him say that this, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Okay, and then that and their thinking was blasphemy, because you were attacking the land, the law, and the temple, and that could never do. So the high priest asked him, are these things true, Stephen? The whole Sanhedrin was there. A young man named Saul was there as well. We don't know if he was a member of the Sanhedrin, but he definitely was connected to it. And they all look at this guy, and he's supposed to defend himself. And the scripture says he had a face like an angel. And what we get now is one of the greatest acts of courage ever recorded in scripture his speech. This was a man who was filled with the Spirit of God who has been given words to speak. So Stephen speaks out. It's basically all of chapter 7, or most of it. When you think of Stephen, what do you think of? You who have been in church a long time, you think of what? What's the word that comes to mind? Martyr, right? Okay, the first Christian martyr. And that's true. He was, as far as we know, recorded in the Scripture. And I used to think that the story of Stephen and that whole thing in Acts was mostly about him becoming the first martyr, the first death, okay? Okay. And I thought that was the main point. Here Luke is showing us, you know, how this man stood for Jesus and then he died for it. Now, the story is definitely about that. There's, there's no doubt. But I think if you read the whole account from the end of chapter 6 to the beginning of 8 where he dies, you'll find out something kind of interesting. When you're studying the scriptures, you need to know that when a, a Bible writer gives a lot of ink to a certain thing, that's probably important, Okay. So the whole account of his trial and martyrdom takes about 13 verses, okay, out of the whole account. Uh, The total will be about 65 verses. So 13 have to do with his trial and then his death. His speech in chapter 7 takes 52 verses. 52 verses, verses 13. So what's the most important thing here? Is it the fact that he died or, or is it what he's talking about in chapter 7 that Luke wants us to understand? I think it's what... He's talking about in chapter 7 when he makes his case to the Sanhedrin. That's the part that God wants us to get. okay. But the hard part is you read it and it's hard to get. (laughs) Commentators have talked about this speech and they're saying, what is he talking about? It seems like he's giving a history of Israel okay so he's, it, it seems like he's standing up and lecturing the, the Sanhedrin on the history of Israel beginning with Abraham all the way through to the prophets and some commentators have said we have no idea why he's doing this and it just doesn't make any sense at all okay and if you just read it at a, at a sort of a surface level that's what it seems like and it's hard to understand the content of the speech, the speech is puzzling he doesn't defend himself really uh, he, he makes no reference to himself at all, and this is his defense. He's giving a history of God's work with Israel. And I'm reading this, and I'm going, okay, this is all good, Stephen, to tell us about Abraham and the patriarchs and Moses, and, and, but what's the point? What's the point here? And a commentator who's much smarter than I am helped me get it. What it is is that he is talking about the three pillars of the Jewish faith at that time, what people were trusting in, and he was saying, you know what, Folks. The very center of your faith is is incorrect. You're not placing your faith in the right things, all right, and the right persons. And so he goes after each one, one by one. He begins with the land, okay? He talks about the land, the law, and the temple. First he talks about the land, verses 1 to 36. Stephen says, if you think, folks, that we have God's blessing just because we're living here in Palestine in the land... Let's think about that, okay? If you want to talk land, let's talk land. Then he tells the story of Abraham. He says, Abraham was out in Mesopotamia somewhere. He was far from Palestine when God called him. And he said, go to this place and I'll give it to you. And so Abraham goes in verse 5, and God brings him to the land, but he never owned a a square foot of Palestine, of the promised land of Canaan. And yet Abraham was, was their father, right, of the faith. And this is what mattered to Abraham. It was the covenant. It was the covenant relationship with God. That's what mattered to Abraham. And the land was just a blessing. It was a proof that God loved him. But but to have the land wasn't the most important thing. He does the same thing with the patriarchs. He talks about them and them having to be in Egypt. And they ended up in Egypt. They're not in Palestine. And where they get blessed is when they go to Egypt. Then he talks about Moses in verse 17 to 36. Moses, the deliverer, the great story of the Hebrew faith, the Exodus. God delivers them from somebody inside Egypt and leads them to the promised land. Okay. Moses himself never even entered the promised land. So Abraham, Moses, the stars, the superstars of their faith didn't have land. And the idea here is that even though Israel is the holy land, God can act anywhere. He's not restricted to acting in one place. And the idea for us, folks, is just because we live in the promised land of northern Alberta, it doesn't mean God is restricted to acting right here, even La Gloss. I think that's the point he's getting across, okay? It's not just because we've been blessed with land and possessions, that doesn't necessarily mean that God's work with us is finished, or that we necessarily even have his stamp of approval, okay, just because we've got land, all right? Stephen is saying there's something bigger than land here, okay? And then he goes on, then he talks about law, which was the second pillar of their faith, verses 37 to 43. Stephen was accused of speaking against the law of Moses. In other words, he was accused of, well, you're speaking against our Bible. You want to change our customs, that Moses gave to us. And the Jewish people had the idea that their Bible was more or less complete. Yes, they were looking for a Messiah, but they weren't looking for necessarily for new revelation from God. Okay? They said, we have the Bible, we have the Torah. And, and it was almost like they worshipped their Bible, worshipped their Torah, worshipped their Pentateuch, and they made up laws, and they had scribes, and they had Pharisees, and they'd debate for days and weeks about the meaning of phrases and stuff. But they missed the whole point of it. And so Moses himself, this is interesting what Stephen says in verse 17. He says, Moses himself, when he was leading you, he said this. He said, God's going to send you another prophet like me from among your own people. Okay? And what happened to Moses was he was rejected by the people. And Stephen implies God's going to send you another prophet in the future and you're going to reject him too. See, the idea here, folks, is, yes, we have the Bible. And God speaks in the Bible. It is written revelation. But that does not necessarily mean that God has stopped speaking in our lives today and in the future. And let's not think that God speaking and his work stopped when the last chapter of Revelation was written. He's alive today, and he's working. And he's doing something here in La Glace, And he's doing something in the peace country, third thing that he was accused of attacking Stephen was was the temple verses 44 to 50 you see and in the history of their faith the Jewish people had two uh, main places of worship the first one was what out in the wilderness the what Where, where did they worship the tabernacle right was the tabernacle a permanent thing or like in one spot or did it move around It moved around. The idea of the tabernacle was it was temporary in one spot, but as God said, okay, we're getting up and we're moving, they'd pack up the tabernacle and they'd move it around. And it's even interesting how the formations of the tribes would line up. Somebody figured this out once. They actually formed the shape of a cross. (laughs) The, the, The people did, like if you looked at them from over top. Uh, as if you'd be flying over in a biblical helicopter. It'd be going across the desert or across the wilderness. But the tabernacle moved with the people and moved with God. Then later on, they got the temple, which was more of a permanent thing in Jerusalem, okay? And, And it's not like... The temple is a bad thing. The temple is a good thing, but it was more temporary and permanent. So people began to look at the temple as saying, this is proof that God has blessed us. We've got this, look at this beautiful temple right here in Jerusalem. We must be God's people. This is it. I mean, this is the ultimate thing that God is doing. And Stephen says, no, no. Look at, um, I got to find the verse here. Oh, wrong chapter. Here we are. Look at verse 48. This is his point. He says, The Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, and he quotes Isaiah, this was our theme verse today Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? He's saying, Let's not get the idea that God only lives in our temple. God is everywhere in his creation, and he's able to work anywhere. And we see this through the tabernacle. He would move around. And now, the scripture says, we are now the temple of the Spirit. So we carry God's Spirit with us wherever we go. Okay? So he looks at each one of their pillars. And he says, you know what? You guys have been placing your faith in the wrong thing. And especially the temple. And that means that, yes, God's spirit dwells here each Sunday when we gather, but we take God's spirit when we leave the building. Okay, And God is not restricted to this place. Stephen now goes for the knockout punch in verse 51. Now, he's not real subtle here. Look at verse 51. He says, You stiff-necked people, <laughs> you always resist the Holy Spirit. He's, he's talking to the Sanhedrin. I mean, these, these are the grand pubas of the Jewish faith. Not only did you reject Moses and the prophets, you resisted and killed Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one. Now, this was blasphemy to them. And as they growled at him, he looks up and he says, look, I see the heavens open and, and I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And they couldn't stand it. See, Jesus was standing at God's right hand. We're not quite sure the interpretation of that, but the posture of a martyr or of a witness was standing. You stand and you give a defense. And it was almost as if Stephen's on earth giving a defense, talking about Messiah in front of the Sanhedrin, and here's Jesus Christ in heaven standing beside the Father, interceding for Stephen to the Father. And he sees it. It says he sees the glory of God. The Sanhedrin was thrown into a frenzy. Stephen had condemned them for putting the the land, the law, and the temple at the center of their faith and for rejecting Jesus the Messiah. See, God did something new. He sent Messiah and you couldn't even see it because you were so stuck on your three pillars you had no room for anything else. So these people, the Sanhedrin, either had to repent of rejecting Messiah and accept Christ or kill Stephen and silence him because their hearts were hard. It says they covered their ears. It's like... We're not listening to you. That's a scary thing. That really scared me. We're not listening to you. And then they're screaming. Like they're yelling. So it's like, we're not hearing you. And they run at him. And they grab him and they drag him out. And they begin to stone him. And they handed their cloaks to a young man named Saul, who approved of the whole thing. And Stephen dies in a hail of stones, like his Savior, asking for the forgiveness of those who were killing him. And then then the scripture says he fell asleep on the ground. That's the New Testament way of saying he died. His body fell asleep. His spirit went instantly into the presence of Christ. And his death began a a rupture, a persecution of the church in in Jerusalem that moves us into the second phase from Jerusalem out into Samaria. Samaria. And on the, it was a terrible thing on one hand. I mean, it was the death of a man. But the people were forced out into the countryside, into Samaria, and they went to new places with the gospel. And ironically, they began fulfilling words of Jesus in Acts 1.8. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and next will be Samaria. And through the death of Stephen, his blood on the ground forced everybody out into the second stage of God's plan. What do we make of this story? What do we make of the speech and what happens to him? I used to think the Stephen story was just about you know, witnessing for Jesus and being willing to die for him. And, that, and it is. But from what Luke is saying, it's more like this, I believe. God is saying to us, what kind of people are you going to be? The Gloss Bible Fellowship. Are you going to be backwards oriented? Looking to the past, to some nostalgic age? Or are you going to live in the present? What is now? And looking to the future and asking God, and asking me, God is saying, what, do, what am I doing with you now and what am I leading you to in the future? Because we have the land, I guess. We have the law. And I guess we've got kind of a temple here too. But this is not the center of our faith, folks. Jesus is the center. And if we are Jerusalem here, La Gloss, if you can imagine that, God is sending some of us out into our Samaria, which should be Grand Prairie, and, you know, Judea, the peace country, and across the world, you see, because he hasn't stopped working. God is doing new things right now, and he's going to do more things into the future. And I've been praying for a vision for me as a pastor of this church for years, and I think God is starting to give it to me, and I think this is the vision, that we would be the hub of some kind of a church-planning or disciple-making movement in the peace country that could last 10, 20, 30, 40, whatever years into the future because our God is a God of the present and a God of the future as well as a God of the past. This is going to be scary. It might mean saying goodbye to some people. We're seeing this already. It might mean some financial sacrifice. It might mean trying some new things. It might even mean... What God is doing already in some of our Sunday school things among the adults, it's like he's getting us more real with one another so that we can forgive one another and get healed and get on with the, the thing that he's doing among us now and in the future. But that's how God is. Always doing something new if you have eyes to see and ears to hear. Isaiah 43, 19 says it this way. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am a making a a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. So the question I have, just to conclude, is what new thing is God doing in your life today? Let's pray together. Stephen reminds us, Lord, that though you have worked in the past and we stand upon your promises and we stand upon your word, we stand upon... Uh, you Jesus as our cornerstone you're not just a God of the past you're a God of the present so you're wanting to do things in our lives right now you're wanting to heal you're wanting to call us to maturity you're wanting us to change and to grow and you're also calling us to a future of disciple making here in the peace country and uh, so we want to open ourselves to what that means and understand that because you're with us you will never forsake us and you will always carry us through and so give us strength and courage to do the things that need doing in these days for your kingdom's sake and so that we can fulfill all the purposes that you have for us as a church. And We pray this for Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>